I'm Chris Fellingham, and this is The Archers. Like The Archers, but instead of the garden fence being left open at the end of the episode, we want to leave you excited about what social science ventures can do. If you want to leave feedback, email me at chris.fellingham at innovation.ox.ac.uk. I hope you look forward to listening. Welcome back to the Arcus podcast. I'm Joelle and today we'll be continuing on from the previous episode where we heard from entrepreneurs in the current cohort of the Arc Accelerator program. I'll be talking to some more of them in this episode to show you the diversity of ventures within the program. From quantifying culture in organisations to improving gender equality, let's hear what new perspectives the entrepreneurs bring to the table. We talked to Michael Bruter from the London School of Economics about codes, which allows people to voice their opinions on issues they care about and helps organizations involved in the electoral process to understand public opinion. Let's hear his unique angle on this issue. Well, you know, I I was telling you earlier about the fact that I've done consulting um, for many years and, you know, with some of the most prestigious parliaments, electoral commissions, international organ and EU organizations and so on over the years. It's something which is important. They want to understand citizens. They want to understand the people they work for and and they don't always do and they know that we as electoral psychologists do that and my unique perspective is precisely to put people at the heart of those processes because i understand what they don't like because we've got all that so you know i do as a researcher i do comparative panel study surveys in 27 countries i do in-depth interviews i do focus groups i do experiments i do experiments when i feel the shadow of voters when they vote and analyze the nonverbal communication. I look at people keeping election diaries for several weeks. So, um, so, you know, by doing all these things, we've got all the tools to rethink those consultative and democratic processes in a way which works well for the end users, the citizens. And the people who are our potential customers want to do what is best for those end users. Culture is often a fuzzy concept, yet is important to running healthy and innovative organisations. We spoke with Michael Muthukrishna about how Culturalytics is helping companies quantify culture in order to achieve their goals. We chat with him to find out more. The approach that I often take in my work is, uh, I know people talk a lot of interdisciplinarity, prefer the term kind of non-disciplined or undisciplined in the sense that I'm interested in questions. And I look for whatever disciplines happen to have tools that I can use to answer those questions. So I, you know, draw on, you know, statistical or or data science techniques from all of those disciplines. I draw on, you know, measurement techniques from psychological and behavioral science. I draw on intervention techniques from uh, from all of these uh, these things. Uh, And I I bring them together to, to, to bear on the question of culture. The approach that we also take is kind of, it has a bedrock uh, foundation in, 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 uh, in dual inheritance theory of cultural evolution. So we have, we have kind of models that have shown themselves to be highly effective at predicting human behavior uh, when it comes to things like social learning. The, the disciplines are, are kind of in service of this question. How do we measure culture? What can we do with it? How can we intervene? Mm, yeah, so it's more like holistic. The trouble with a lot of approaches, I mean, honestly, like it's often taking kind of a, a one, a one trick pony approach, you know, it's like, you, you know, when you've got a, when you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right. And, and the trouble is the culture means the connectedness of different beliefs and behaviors and power structures and institutions and incentives and all these different pieces that come to and connect together and are kind of mutually reinforcing 
you know, mm-hmm. you know, if, you, if, if everyone comes so late to a meeting, then it makes no sense for you to come early, right? You know, these things all kind of mutually influence one another. The, if you take an approach that is kind of like a, a wiggle switch science approach that only focuses on one narrow thing, you risk making things worse because you're missing all of the pieces that are also contributing to this. And so you very much have to take a, a holistic approach, but then also you have to be able to zoom in and zoom out of the problem that you're, that you're facing. We talked to Robert Clarkson from the University of York about his venture, the Teacher Selection Project, which helps to select and develop new teachers best suited to the profession. Often, the selection process isn't done systematically, which results in sometimes expensive interventions down the line. Let's hear what Robert's unique angle on the issue is through the project. I think it was UNESCO said that, oh, we need to identify, like select and train nearly 70 million new teachers. And... And if you improve at the point of selection, it really is like a quick win. And that's our unique angle, I think. I mean, nobody disagrees that teachers, you know, are important at some level and are healthy, are helpful to the health of your country and education system and so on. Everybody would think that. Um, But it's just something that hasn't really been done. We've not paid attention to um, that beginning point. The fact that there are individual differences of people at the start of their career and that you know when you have to make decisions about selection you can do a better job or a worse job you can identify it it makes sense to identify the best possible candidates because it saves all kinds of money later on um, and it improves your education system in a relatively inexpensive way and so you know whether it's the UK or Canada or wherever um, you know kind of improving the way that we bring people into profession, recruit and select, is one way of improving the education system. And right now, most selection systems are really time consuming and and unreliable um, and unsystematic. And we think that if we can improve and work on that selection system, that we can have an impact on improving educational outcomes. Equal Futures aims to help institutions and organisations to have a more gender-inclusive environment. We chat with the founder, Roberta Garino, from the University of Bristol to find out more about her unique perspective. It's an interdisciplinary perspective, and I think that's actually what I bring to my research as well. Although I, I guess I would identify as a social scientist and a policy analyst by training and by, I guess, employment, my work is deeply interdisciplinary. So I draw as readily from the body of work from sociology and so as political sociology through to political economy, international relations uh, and political psychology and psychology more and social psychology more broadly. Mm-hmm. That is the unique perspective that I bring to this approach that doesn't fit traditional methodologies but seeks to adapt those methodologies to have a more holistic understanding of the issues that we're facing. Children's Voice is an initiative to address child poverty by hearing the priorities and challenges from children and youth themselves in order to create more effective policies. We talked to Sarah Ward to learn about why this is a unique approach to tackling child poverty. It is my personal value that people in disadvantaged communities 
are experts on their own problems. And I really do believe that. And I think that every child has something really useful to give and to say about their own life and about how to address their difficulties. And I also think you can really see children and young people blossom when they get some attention and when they get a light shone on them and some support, which often, you know, these are the children that don't necessarily get that or might not be getting that at home. So it, for me, it is a big personal commitment and passion, I suppose, to support people who are disadvantaged to have more um, chances and to have the opportunity to have some power and control over their lives. Um, yeah, that's absolutely my, my commitment and my, you know, my sort of raison d'etre in terms of my, uh, you know, <laughs> yes, yes. my work and my research. So yeah, I feel that this um, venture could allow that to happen, but also I hope it would actually link to social change because it's not just, it's not really enough to, to only talk, to talk to people in neighborhoods. You really have to be trying to push for change um in a in a in a bigger way um to, to really make to really make that happen so so yeah I think my background means that I really like facilitation I really like talking to people as you've probably worked out by now <laughs> <laughs> I won't shut up um, yeah so I love talking to children and young people I absolutely love it I love reading the transcripts from the data I've been doing that in, over the last few days and children just they're the best they say such brilliant things and I love to read what they say they have such insights um, and, and they really support each other and I think it's a great way to, to for, for children to develop solidarity with their peers as well mm -hmm. using research as a tool for that so, so yeah, that's yeah. a big passion for me. Sharon Hinchliffe from the University of Sheffield developed Age of Love, which is a social enterprise helping to destigmatize sexual well-being and health for over 50s. Let's hear her unique angle in normalizing these often taboo conversations. In the very first project, and it, like I say, it was 20 years ago, I was talking to people about older adults about sexual function, and there was a guy there, and I'll never forget him because he made such an impact with what he said, but he was in his 70s. He was very well and healthy, but he did experience uh, erectile problems. And when I asked him if he had sought help from his GP, he said no, because he didn't want the GP to think that he was a sex maniac or having an interest in sex at, at his age. And it was causing a lot of upset between him and his wife because that was a part of sex that they wanted to continue and that they really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. but they couldn't engage in it and, and he didn't feel comfortable or confident to, to seek help. And it was just like, a you know, it's a bit of a smack in the face that the, the power of a social stereotype about a person and about an activity can actually have on our behaviours and on our help-seeking behaviour and therefore our health and well-being. And that was so powerful that it prevented him from seeking help from a GP. And then sort of over the years, I've actually... Uh, talk to more and more people I've even talked to GPs and and sometimes you find that people have plucked up the courage to seek help and it's it's taken a long time it's mm. not something they get a sexual problem then they go to the doctors it takes months maybe years and a lot of thinking about it and, and rationalizing and they get there and the doctor says well I can't do anything what do you expect me to do mm, mm, mm. <laughs> so the doctor isn't helpful or the doctor is dismissive and then the whole patient's world just comes crashing down because it, it's taken them all that time to, to pluck up the courage to seek that help. And then they get kind of 
you know, they just get told that they, there's nothing that can be done or they can't help. And, and it's because the GP usually doesn't want to or feels um, unprepared. They haven't been trained. They don't get training for this topic. Mm. Any training that they get in med school um, is around sort of sexual and reproductive health. It's about young people. Mm-hmm. And of course, the policy drive as well is about uh, young people. It's about from the UK government. It's about ensuring that we're protecting people in terms of sexually transmitted infections, bringing those down. It's ensuring that um, we're preventing unintended pregnancies. And of course, we don't kind of see these things in relation to older adults, even though we know mm-hmm. that sexually transmitted infections are quite high and they increase year on year in the older mm-hmm. population. So I think they've been quite invisible for some time now and it's about making a change and, and making a difference yeah. in that area. Mm, yeah, definitely. When it's an intersection of like a taboo topic and also like an age group or any yes. group that isn't particularly well researched or uh, understood in like public discourse, I suppose. That's the interesting That's right. intersection. Yeah. Yeah. And if you think about it, when older adults now, someone in their 70s now has grown up during a time when there's been a lot of sort of stigma attached to various sexual activities. So to be gay, they remember a time when it was illegal, actually classed mm. as illegal or a mental health disorder to actually be gay. So there was a lot of social restrictions around who could be sexual with whom and what type of sexual pleasure we were allowed to have and and that does have an impact throughout life what we feel able to share and what we feel able to talk about and what we feel able to reveal about ourselves so that's all for today hope you enjoyed hearing from the entrepreneurs i had so much fun learning all about their ventures so make sure to check out the profiles of these entrepreneurs and their ventures via the arc website if you have any questions feel free to reach out to us and we'll have everything linked in the podcast description so see you in the next episode i hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the arc us thank you to joelle for helping to produce this podcast and we've got plenty more in the pipeline so come and listen